The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So as I mentioned last week, and maybe um, one of you sitting near those lights, if you could turn the one light on the top, I think it's on the right side that isn't, turn it halfway up. Both, both can be about halfway on so we can see each other. Great. What's always nice to do after we sit each night of our class is to take some time and let people ask some questions, both from what you've learned just in the sit tonight, what got in the way, because it's all about continuity of present moment awareness, a mind that is alert and relaxed, and maybe you caught there's some handouts in the lobby, and I have a few up here too. It's a slightly more sophisticated version of the two values of relaxed and alert, but I'll talk about that later. Um, But like what gets in the way of the mind being relaxed and alert? What gets in the way of the continuity of present moment awareness? What in your practice seems to support the continuity of present moment awareness? What What happens when you have continuity of awareness? or any questions that you have about the practice. So we'll use this handheld mic. I mentioned last week that we're recording these sessions. (coughs) Excuse me, I always record the fall course, and we have it up on the website, so just keep that in mind. And you need to point the mic like this, so not up and down, but right at your mouth when you speak. And then we'll be able to hear you, and we'll be able to record it. So questions or just sharings, what you've been learning, what's been challenging in your practice. What comes to mind? Yeah, please, you want to pass it, third row of chairs? Last week I wasn't here, uh, so this is my first week. So, But I did listen to the audio download at home and Good. looked at the hand lo- handouts. I'm having a problem getting beyond not knowing what knowing means. Yeah. So that that gets stuck for me when I'm. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's okay because it's sort of an interesting thing knowing. Like, you know, I clap my hands, and did you notice? Like, watch your mind. Does your mind need to do something to connect to know the sound of that clap or the sound of my voice? Or does your mind need to do something to know the visual experience for those with your eyes open now? As soon as I say your visual experience, you see the knowing is already there, the knowing of the visual experience. So knowing is a natural capacity of the mind. And what we're doing in practice is we're reflectively knowing the knowing, in a sense. I know it sounds a little weird to say it that way, but we're becoming, and this is also problematic language, we're becoming self-aware, right? There's a reflective awareness that experience is being known. Because you can drive home or you can do all kinds of activities during the day, and in a very real sense, the mind is conscious, right? Conscious enough to know how to sew or walk or drive or talk but not necessarily mindfully aware, not necessarily reflectively aware that this is being known. So when I use the word knowing or mindful awareness, right, I'm talking about this reflective knowing. So there's the natural sensitivity. The mind is naturally sensitive to these six things, the five physical senses, And the mind is also sensitive to thought or other mental activity, right? And beyond these six things, there's nothing. I mean, it's created that list of six to include absolutely everything the mind can be sensitive of. Every moment of our experience has been a sensitivity to these six things. And so now what we're doing is this one part of the mind can be reflectively aware that the mind is sensitive to these six things. 
And that's this continuity of present moment awareness. It's really a reflective awareness. Another image that's used quite a bit in the tradition, none of them are perfect, but this image or simile is useful, I think, is that of a mirror. So you can imagine a perfect mirror. And what we're doing is we're, the mind has this talent to have this mirror-like or reflective awareness, right? So we're strengthening that tendency. We're strengthening the mind's capacity to remember that capacity, to recognize that mirror, which is just reflecting what's being known. All every moment, it's just reflecting. Oh, this is being known. This is being known. This is being known. Right. So it's really that reflective knowing. What's the mind doing? What's the mind knowing? What's the mind knowing now? Right? Because you can ask, you can even drop that question in the mind from time to time. What's the mind knowing? Especially during daily life practice. So maybe not as much in your formal sitting time, but just during the day to strengthen, to cultivate more mindful awareness. Just ask, well, what's the mind knowing? What's the mind doing? What's being known? Oh, this is being known. Sadness is being known. Joy is being known. Walking, sensations of walking being known. Oh, it's like this now. This is what's being known. Can this be okay? Meaning, is it safe to relax in the experience of this being known? Yeah, safe to relax. Yeah, and generally we over... Do it. So one of the common things people will notice is this sort of neurotic sense that I have to make an effort to know, an effort to be aware. And then generally you get a headache or people feel tension by the third eye or around the eyes. Or they notice you're sort of leaning forward. Because we equate awareness, mindful awareness, with focusing. So generally, we've a lot of our a lot of the teachers we've trained ourselves not to use words like focus or concentration when teaching mindful awareness because it brings out a kind of uh, an unuseful efforting. Knowing is a much more natural process. And it's more about keeping it in mind or remembering. We're training the mind to remember, to recognize, or to remember to reflectively recognize that it's like this, that this is being known. So it's really, the effort is more about remembering to notice this capacity of the mind to be reflectively aware. Because mostly... We're not remembering to know. We get kind of, we even say that, oh, I was lost in thought. Or another word we use, I got absorbed in this activity. And by that, we normally mean that I lost that reflective knowing. Like if you're in the middle of a good book or a good TV series, you go home and you get lost in it. Sometimes we get lost in things on purpose, right? Because we just want a break from life. So we pick up a good novel or watch a good show, or something like that, because we want to disappear. We don't want to be reflectively aware. We want an escape. And that's sort of the opposite of what we're cultivating here. Instead of the happiness of a good escape, we're learning to orient our life around or value the happiness of being peaceful with the way it is. So in that way, there's no surprise. One of the problems with escape, what's the problem with escape? A good escape, not a bad, I mean, there are a lot of bad escapes. We know what the problems of those are, like if you drink too much or, you know. But what's the problem with even a good escape, like, you know, a relatively wholesome escape, like going home and playing backgammon with a good friend and really getting absorbed in the backgammon game or reading a good novel? You got to come back exactly. You got to come back, and and to whatever degree the mind was enjoying the absence of the to do list and whatever else it feels when it's 
grounded in the present moment. Because when we're in the present moment, when the mind has this open and inclusive and integrated presence, sensitive presence, it's like we feel we open to our existential reality of, I mean, the whole shebang, including being a frightened beast, being an anxious beast, being a confused beast, being a needy beast. I mean, we're all these different things, all of that and all the sort of unresolved pain in our life. It's all here in the present moment. There's no other hidden closet for all that stuff to be. So when we're really present, we're really present with all the messiness. Now the advantage of cultivating present moment awareness is there's no surprise, no hidden monsters, because the whole point of being present is that everything's on the table, everything's here and now. So you'll notice that sort of absence of being surprised when you've cultivated more ongoing present moment awareness. And the more you rely on escapes, the more you have, like you suggest, that really yucky feeling of coming back to the present moment. And then when you come back, like you've had a good escape, and then you come back, what do you want to do? You want another escape, right? Oh, yeah, what's the next escape? And you become more and more attached. And your comment is sort of setting me up about some material I wanted to cover anyway. And there's a very famous discourse the Buddha gave, uh, usually translated as the second dart or the second arrow. It's really a profound teaching. I won't be able to go through the whole thing. But the, the basic point the Buddha is making in this talk is that the definition of an ordinary human being, a human being that suffers a lot, is that when an ordinary difficult experience arises for that person, the habit is to relate to the ordinary difficult experience by getting upset. And in that way, you're kind of shooting yourself with a second dart or a second arrow, right? So you stub your toe, that's the first arrow, and then you hate yourself for being such an idiot and stubbing your toe. That kind of emotional reaction is the second arrow, right? Totally unnecessary. We're probably not going to live without bumping our head or stubbing our toe or just the normal emotional, physical insults that will come our way. It's just as part of the territory of being a human being, these difficult things that show up for us. But our reaction is optional. You know, getting tight, like we, some of us will lose a job or some of us will have a breakup or some of us will get sick. All of us will get sick. All of us will die. We'll all have some of these things. But how the mind relates, that's in play. So a more subtle part of this particular discourse talk that the Buddha gave way back when is he said, you know, because there are these ordinary difficult experiences, both emotional and physical experiences, that's just part of the territory of being a human being. And because generally unskilled humans, that's us, you know, people who aren't perfectly trained, we get averse, we're afraid and averse, and even hate the difficult experiences that come our way, right? That seems fair to say. So not liking difficult experience makes us more dependent on pleasant experience. You have a bad day, isn't it true when you come home after a difficult day with a lot of unpleasantness, you want pleasant stuff. I'm going to go get some chocolate. I'm going to find something stupid to watch on the internet, you know, some cat video or something to distract me or something like that. So we become more desperate for sense pleasures because of the ordinary difficult experience. And so that sort of sets up right, uh, a kind of denial and running from the ordinary difficult experience, more desperation for the pleasant. The more we're desperate for pleasant, the stress of needing the mind being dependent 
not a good distraction, kind of ruins it, doesn't it? It's like totally wonderful if you have one of those magical things where you meet just the right person, you get along, you fall in love, and you live happily after, ever after. But it's totally painful to desperately need that wonderful, perfect person in your life, right? Or to desperately need to get rid of the person you thought was wonderful because <laughs> it turns out that they weren't so wonderful or they don't, you know, it's not working anymore for whatever reason. So it just sets up more suffering, like becoming more dependent on pleasant experience to manage the reality of unpleasant experience. It's just one setup on top of another. The first setup is thinking that running from unpleasant experience is a way to minimize unpleasant experience, where when we observe in this balanced way with awareness, we see, no, it's just this adding more stress. And it makes the mind more dependent on pleasant experience, which is stressful, and makes the mind less aware of neutral experience. Because neutral experience, which is a big chunk of our reality, things that are just sort of neutral, neither pleasant or unpleasant, because we're obsessed, not wanting to feel the unpleasant, have become more dependent on the pleasant, we become oblivious to the neutral, which means our mind gets trained to be unaware of a big portion of our lived experience. And then what does that do? Life starts to feel really flat and depressing because we're discon- we've used the strategy of being unaware of this big chunk we call neutral, experience that doesn't stand out as being unpleasant or pleasant. And it's not like we've ever made a, that anyone ever makes a conscious choice, you know what, I think I'll decide not to be aware of neutral experience. But we are. You know, you're walking down the street, and unless someone points it out, we don't notice sunshine. I mean, that's not even neutral. It's actually, most, for most people, kind of pleasant to feel the warmth of the sun. But it's an unusual experience. Or just to feel the physicality of the body walking. It's one of the reasons why in Buddhism we do a lot of training with neutral experience, like breathing in, aware of the whole body, breathing out, aware of the whole body. We have to reform the mind because the habit is to be afraid of the unpleasant, to be desperately dependent on the pleasant, and to be oblivious to the neutral. These habits are more deeply ingrained in our minds than any other habits, really around feeling tone. And as the weeks go by, I'll give you more and more encouragement to tune in to the feeling tone, like I did in tonight's guided meditation, that when you notice that the mind is consistently distracted, obsessing in some way, caught up in thought in a repeated way, then that's a good time to ask yourself, what's the feeling here? Is there a feeling that's being felt here or could be felt here? Oh yeah, it's yucky, it's unpleasant. Well, is it safe to be aware? So now then the feeling, and it might be pleasant, then the feeling becomes the primary meditation object, right? So... You still may be aware of the breath coming in. You still may be aware of the whole body. You still may be aware of the distraction in the mind, the thinking mind. But what you're training to bring into the forefront of attention is the feeling tone. Oh, unpleasantness is like this, or pleasantness is like this. It's just pleasantness, unpleasantness, whatever, being known. And to really have insight, like what is the experience of pleasantness being known or unpleasantness being known or neutrality being known. We're not often curious about the feeling tone. So if you're doing something exciting tonight, like you do get chocolate or there's something fun you get to do or you see your dog or whatever it is, see if you can start getting interested in the pleasantness of it. You'll feel some resistance. It almost will feel like um, inappropriate for the mind, the attention, the awareness to be intimate with the feeling. 
but it will be very liberating to train your mind to be curious, interested in feeling tone. So that's a very long answer to your comment. <laughs> but I wanted to get some of that content in anyway. Yeah, please, you want to pass the mic over here? Thanks, Scott, for helping. Scott's one of our leaders here. Just happens to be here tonight. I, I, I feel like at least for me as a total beginner, just trying to be aware of these things is um, I feel like sometimes there's even a third dart for me of um, stubbing my toe. Not liking it. Yeah, not liking it. And then the third dart of like judging myself for having the emotional response or getting into that headspace. I'm wondering if you have any um, yeah. response to that. So in Buddhism, you might have heard the word samsara. I mean, a lot of these Buddhist words have become the names for perfumes these days. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> samsara and craving, you know, and uh, nibbana. Who knows what else has been used? But anyway, I noticed recently that samsara is a name of perfume. But what it means is cycles of suffering, right? The cycles of suffering. And uh, this is exactly what you were pointing to because, you know, there's something painful arises and the mind resists the pain. That's also painful. And then the mind judges itself for resisting the pain because it's the same movement. There's the initial pain and then there's the resistance. But the resistance is painful and then there's resistance of the resistance, and that's painful. So there's so that the second arrow keeps, like you're suggesting, keeps repeating, and that's the cycles of suffering. And then for a human being that's doing that, we get really desperate for some relief, and we're willing. I've noticed this in myself. I'm sure you've seen yourself do something similar. It's like I'll get in my car and I'll drive to get some chocolate, knowing full well that the chocolate is not going to alleviate the yucky feeling, but desperate to do something. Or I'll check something on the internet. Even though there is nothing satisfying about checking the newspaper on the internet. Right? But I'll do something with the desperate hope that there will be something distracting or entertaining or somewhat pleasant. Right? And with awareness now we start to see this. And initially, it can be really disconcerting because it's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to see this. But there's no way out without seeing it. And the basic way out is related to what I was saying a moment earlier, which is realizing that it's okay to feel the feeling. It is actually safe to feel what's being felt. For one thing, it's already a feeling being felt. Being unaware... That you're feeling something doesn't mean you're not feeling it. It means it's kind of like, you know, you're thinking something you shouldn't be thinking, and then you go, la, 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 you know, like trying to distract yourself from being who you are in that moment. It's crazy-making. So it's so much more simple to be willing to just feel what's being felt. It's so peaceful. Even if the feeling is really yucky, really disturbing or really exciting and beautiful. Surprisingly, this is like a heads up for where we're going in the weeks ahead. Joy is much harder to be intimate with than pain, right? We kind of develop some skill in meditation practice by learning to be intimate, present, stable with the unpleasant mental and physical experiences. But you'll find, most people at least, find it more challenging to be aware in a present moment away, present moment way, with joy and rapture and bliss and peace, right? Because it, those enlivening, energizing, wholesome qualities of mind, it triggers a very deep habit of, well, I feel pretty good about my life. I want to do, right? We become a doer. We get it. We want to plan. We want to fix. Because now we feel good. And it's hard just to let that good, pleasant energy move without neurotically thinking we need to do anything more than just be intimate with it. It's not that it's wrong to do things, of course, but we're, we want to learn to be with feeling without 
neurotically having to do something. We want to be able to be with unpleasantness without having to get rid of it. And we want to be able to be with pleasantness without needing to hold on to it. And we want to be intimate with neutrality without needing to ignore it. Right? So counter the habit. The habit with unpleasant is to want to push it away. So we bring it in. The habit with pleasant is to hold on. So we practice just letting it be, letting go. Yeah, if it's around, it's around, but I'm not holding to it. Right? And the habit with neutral is to be oblivious to it. So we practice being interested in it. And this, there's a lot of freedom. And it, ultimately, we don't have to do the opposite, but because of the strength of the habit as a training, we get interested in the unpleasant, right? Like instead of pushing it away, we invite it in. Yes, you too. Like a painful memory arises. Yes, you too belong. Knee pain arises. Yes, you too. A disturbing sound. You're in a peaceful place, and then somebody starts to hurley up next door. You know, yes, you too. Yes, you too. Cat scratches on the door, wanting to get into your bedroom or wherever you're meditating. Scratchings be known. You know, unpleasantness is, is like this. Yes, this belongs. So this is getting a little bit ahead, but week three, four, I generally talk a lot about the feeling tone. We're just, it's just coming up in people's comments tonight. Thanks for comment. Who's next? Questions about practice? Reflections? Yeah, please. So this, I guess, is a technique question. Sure. So um, how, to, how deep to get into sense-making in a way. So... Um, my mind automatically, like, you'll hear the noise. My mind, you know, and so I'm trying really hard to just recognize, like, a noise has been heard, but then it's, I wonder if that was a Harley. Who owns it, right? And so we, let's, let me stop you. So what's that? What you just did, what's that? I mean, I label it sense-making. I label it mm-hmm. this desire to, to name mm-hmm. what's, go- I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So the simple is, it's thinking, but you want to go, you want to be a little bit more intimate, more, clearly aware, yeah, and you call it sense-making, that would be fine, or figuring it out is being known. It's always something being known, and if you can't get Uh clear what it is, then just use this is being known. Because the label, and remember, you don't have to label at all, but you want to be able to label when you need to, right, to kind of, because what the label, the mental label, it puts a frame around the present moment experience that the attention is knowing, right? So you you put a frame around that little mental activity of you trying to figure out what that sound is, and you called it sense-making, or you could call it figuring it out, you know, curiosity is being known, figuring out is being known, sense-making is being known, right? So you're just identifying the predominant experiences when there are really strongly predominant experiences, and when they're not, we come back to the basic training. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Or for some of you, you might prefer hearing as your predominant or as your uh, training ground, your anchor that you come back to. So, so that works for me with the Harley, but here's, here's where it... Um, so this idea of sitting with feelings, um, usually the feeling isn't the first thing that I see. What I see is, um, oh, my mind has drifted to X. And I have to sit there for a while. I have to do, a, frankly, a little sense-making to go, oh, and that feels sad for me, or that's shameful for me. But I have to sit in it. And so it's this, um, I guess, this wrestling match between how long I let myself sit in something that feels distractive yeah. in order to get to the feeling. Um, and that's only because the awareness isn't that stable yet. Okay. You know, doesn't have as, that much momentum. So that's why in the beginning with distraction, instead of staying with it until the feeling gets obvious, it's better to come back to the training because the training, the anchor, will develop that stability of awareness. It's basically the power of awareness. It really, because, you know, our attention is usually scattered. It's the energy of attention di- is dissipated because it's we're scattered. We're kind of... But before we really connect here, we're already turning the attention here. And it, 
So <clears throat> when we're, we take up a particular training like feeling the breath coming in and practicing being interested, being aware of the experience of the whole body, and then that's you know whatever that four or five second period is, you know, we're practicing holding, remembering to be interested, remembering to be alert and relaxed with the whole body, not controlling it. We're not trying to make the sensations of the body any particular way. So it's a really, it's a receptive awareness. But the muscle we're strengthening is remembering the present moment. But we're doing it in this more specific way, like training to be aware of this one thing, whole body awareness, breathing out whole body awareness. And it's like we're gathering the energies of the mind, and the mind is becoming more powerful, more stable, more settled, more clear. And then when distraction arises, that stability of mind can more quickly realize this is the content, this is the feeling tone associated with that memory or that thinking content, right? And it's very, it's relatively easy to go from the content right to the feeling tone. And you're not pushing the content away. You know, like maybe I remember <clears throat> something I read in the news today, you know, that was disturbing to me. And uh, so, I, and, you know, for an, an instant or so, I'm with the content. Oh, I can't believe that jerk did, said that about this, you know. And then very quickly, because my mind has been trained, because the awareness is somewhat stable, I notice the contraction, the visceral tightness in the mind and body. Oh, that contraction is unpleasant. This is unpleasant. It's unpleasant as being known. Because it turns out that the feeling tone is more relevant than the content. Whatever the memory is, whatever the thought is about the past or future, what's relevant is whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Because it's the feeling tone that dr drives so much activity. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Maybe time for one or two more. What else from your home practice or practice tonight that you've been learning or want to bring up for the group? Well, it's pretty interesting that you've been talking about this tonight because um, I've just had a two-year-long cancer battle, and um, I'm dealing with tinnitus and uh, hyperacusis from the uh, chemotherapy. And so there's this constant ring in my ears. But uh, I, it's... It's interesting because I can still find sort of a sort of a place in in the uh, quiet, but it's constant. So, sorry, I'm getting emotional about it, but mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there is some way to uh, to sort of refocus that that constant ring, or if if there's somewhere somewhere else I should you know base the uh, the sort of distraction. Yeah. Well, you don't need to pathologize the ring, right? And, and interestingly, for some people, this is their primary object, right? And uh, because it's just a shh sound, right? It's kind of, it's a little bit like the blower. It's just happening inside the mind or inside the head, right? So more relevant than the sound is the question, what is the skillful way for the mind to relate to the sound? With aversion, with interest, with a relaxed, alert presence, right? And then if there's some resistance to it, then to notice the resistance, the not liking of it. Oh, not liking is like this. Not liking is like this. So I'm not saying that you should make it your predominant or your training object, your anchor, but some people do, and that's okay. But what I can say absolutely is notice how the mind is relating. Notice that in a non-judging way. So the fear or the aversion that the mind has toward the sound, notice that. Oh, this is the not liking. And notice that it's painful or that it's stressful, they're not liking. With compassion, like, oh, honey, you don't like this. You know, not liking is like this. And see if you can make peace, not with the sound, 
but initially make peace with the not liking of the sound. Right? Because we always have to start with the reaction before you can cultivate a wholesome relationship with the experience of tinnitus, you know, that sound. You need to make peace initially with the not liking of it, the habit of not liking it, the habit of being afraid of it, the habit of resisting it. And then remember, you can turn your attention away. You know, you may want to use whole body awareness just as a, and just let the sound be what it is. But when it comes back into the foreground, then look at the not liking of it. Okay, there's not liking happening. And not liking feels like this. Can this be okay that the mind has this habit to resist or not like? The sound. Can this be okay? What happens if I relax with this? If I allow this to be what it is? So instead of trying to get rid of the not liking of it, you're noticing as you learn how to look at it or open to it with mindful awareness, you're going to notice it cease on its own. And then there will just be the sound, but not the not liking of it. And you'll find it's not such a problem what makes it a problem is the not liking of it more than the sound itself, the resistance to it. And that can go away. The sound may or may not go away. It just depends on the physical conditions. But the not, liking of, the not liking of it can definitely change through awareness practice, mindful awareness practice. Thanks for bringing that up. Good Thank luck you. with the healing. Anybody else? Right behind you, Scott. I was thinking about what you were just saying about the, um, in the non-judging way that you mentioned, and I, that was something that came up for me, especially at the beginning of the week with the, I would say something that I go, well, that was kind of judging. And then I was like, well, that sounds a little judgy too. Now you're, you're really judgy. And then I would get all, you know, I was like, oh my God, I have like 17 layers of active mind. Um, so when you were just saying that, oh honey thing, that kind of, I like that idea. That just made me think, oh, I might use oh, honey as a f- meditative phrase there. But I wanted to see heart. if you had more thoughts about that. Yeah, yeah. Gestures, some of these things really work, especially out in daily life. It's sort of nice, generally in the sitting time, the formal meditation time, to hold the body still. But if it gets really intense, you can use this simple gesture. It can really help. Something as simple as that with the oh, honey, or whatever your version of oh, honey is. <laughs> Sweetie pie. <laughs> Honey bunch <laughs> will kind of reveal our age by these words we use. But the, the point is, and we'll, do, we'll uh, spend a lot of week five looking at how compassion and kindness is an essential quality. You can't really be mindfully aware. You can't be intimate or present with things as they are without this quality of kindness and compassion. So in Buddhism, it's a, it exists as a separate or as a distinct meditation practice because we need to develop some momentum so that it's just there naturally in the awareness practice, right? So we'll talk about that. Yeah, but in the meantime, just experiment with how you can change because remember, it's not about fixing anything. The whole path is about understanding the understanding that arises when awareness is intimate. That's why I always use my hands because there's always, there's always only two things. Any moment of existence, our whole life, are two things. Something being known. It's never more complicated than that. I know life seems a lot more complicated, but it comes down to something being known. right? And it's like this. The knowing and the something that's being known, you can't actually tease them apart. Like this moment is being known for each of us, right? Now we know there's knowing, and we know there's something being known. So, but that's, the reality is just this, that this is something being known, and in a way, just to be provocative, it's an act of love, right? That connection, that willingness to be undefended, like to awaken to this is something being known, is to 
be vulnerable. Like we're vulnerable to the way it is right now. Like how it feels, what's being seen, what's arising in terms of these six sense gates. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental activity being known. Right? It's a real you know, exposure. Life is exposure. Do you remember, it's been made the round so many times. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, Helen Keller was a big deal. Some of you maybe didn't hear about Helen Keller. Ann Sullivan is a school just not too far away from here, Minneapolis Public School, named after Helen Keller's teacher. But anyway, she was a woman, a girl, who as a, I don't know, three or four, got a terrible fever and then uh, lost her sight and uh, her hearing. And because she was so young, uh, for many years she didn't speak. I don't know if she was already speaking when she had the fever or not, but in any case, until she met her teacher, she didn't really learn how to speak. And first, you know, through signing, and then eventually uh, learned to talk. And um, she has this great quote. I think there are a couple versions of it. But it's basically, life is a daring adventure or it's nothing. Right? And so this exposure we learn, not initially to tolerate and then really learn to thrive, is just understanding how much exposure there is in being aware, cultivating present moment awareness. Because the thing about the present moment, this contact, this connecting with the present moment, it's it's not like we are ever done with it. Oh, okay, I, I'm here in the present moment. I got back. Because it's always changing, right? The past, the present moment is disappearing into the past. Where is today? It's completely gone. Not only is today, like this afternoon, gone, but 7.30 when the class began is just completely gone. It doesn't exist anywhere. This moment is about... There, it's gone. <laughs> you know, it's like, and not only that, the future which we imagine is like out there waiting for us, it isn't out there anywhere. There is no future like out there. Nine o'clock isn't out there somewhere waiting for us, like we're driving to nine o'clock, you know. <laughs> it's already there, we just haven't gotten there yet. Nine o'clock literally does not exist anywhere, nor does the moment previous exist anywhere. So this exposure, this present moment, we don't realize how ephemeral, how astounding it is, right? Until we start to practice. And we come so alive, the more, it seems so boring. You know, there's like nothing more boring like breathing in, feeling the whole body, breathing out. <laughs> hearing's being known, hearing's being known, anger's being known. Not liking this is being known. Thinking this is stupid is being known. Never going to do this again is being known. <laughs> it feels like insufferable. Until the knowing, right? until wisdom understands, begins to have a glimpse of what's really going on, how insubstantial, how alive, how astounding the present moment is. It's really... Something that has to be experienced. Now, that's just a little encouragement. But trying hard won't get you there. What gets us there is being relaxed and alert. And then I mentioned, you can pick one up on your way out, on the table in the entranceway, and then there's a stack up here too. And I can make more copies if they're not enough. But this is just a slightly longer version. Some teachers really use this. Some of you know Tara Brock, very well-known teacher. And who knows who first came up with this acronym, RAIN, R-A-I-N. But it's just a nice, slightly more sophisticated way to remember the practice. So instead of the two values of being relaxed and alert, we have R for recognize, right? Open, recognize, connect. A is accept, allow. I is interest. And N is non-attachment. So the first R is really kind of a stand-in, both the R and the I for alertness. And the A and the N is a stand-in for relaxation. Right? We're allowing. 
And non-attachment is the more profound expression of relax. Non-attachment is realizing that we can't hold on anyway. It's just stuff happening. Even our own thoughts, you know, come and go. We just pretend that we're thinking. Are you actually thinking the thoughts? Like if you're having the thought, oh, this is really interesting. Are you doing that? Or did that thought just arise in the mind and was known? Right? It seems like we're thinking thoughts, that there's somebody thinking the thought, in like in the way that I'm thinking now that I'm giving this talk. But if I just relax a little bit more, I see that the talk is happening, words are being spoken and are being known. And if like if I said, no, 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 I'm doing it, well, I know that there's that little sort of tension of self-consciousness. That's just that little tension being known. Right? So that the activity is very natural. Does it come from, it's just a habit we have, a thinking habit, to assert or project that I'm doing my life. I'm thinking, I'm seeing, I'm hearing. So you'll notice like when I'm languaging it, I don't say, oh, I'm hearing that sound. Hearing is being known. I, I, on purpose, and you could do this too, on purpose, use passive language. Seeing is being known. Because that's actually more truthful. Seeing is being known. When I say I'm seeing, you know, that's the convention, you know, and out in the world when you're talking to people, use normal language. <laughs> I think you're strange. But the reality is, no, it's just thinking is being known. Worrying is being known. Sensing, making sense out of things is being known. That activity of mind is just something being known. And there's that moment of mindful awareness, that moment of connection, that moment of kindness and compassion, the knowing mind, knowing it's like this. And that's it. Nothing before it, nothing behind it. And then that's gone. And then something else is being known. And then that's gone. And then something else is being known. And it's gone. Buddha and many teachers have said, if we, to the degree we can be aware of this, it's really hard to be an angry person. It's really hard to be a mean person. It's really hard to be a greedy person. When we realize our subjective reality in this very clear, simple way. But when we're lost in our thoughts about things, we can be a real jerk. We can do horrendous things in the world when we're caught in our thoughts about things, identified, attached to our thoughts about things. So you can work with these four. And the nice thing you know, that you're going to want to be able to do is when you get really lost in thought in the middle of a sit and you completely forget, like, what am I doing or what is this about? You want to be able to give yourself a one-minute or two-minute little Dharma talk, basically to review for yourself what the practice is. And then you can use the simple version, honey, just be relaxed and alert. Or you can use the slightly more sophisticated version, okay, Rain. Recognize what's being known. Accept. Is there a way to be interested? You know, interest not in the sense of focusing in on it. Real interest, like if you were walking, it's dusk, and you hear a sound you've never heard before, you know how you just get still and you really listen? That's interest. Right? That kind of passive, still sense of awe or interest. What's happening? What is this? Oh, it's just this being known. So you can just remember rain. And the non-attachment isn't something you do directly. It's something you notice arising when the first three have some momentum. The mind is recognizing with some continuity, moment by moment, accepting this sort of sense of interest. And then you'll realize the mind with no friction. The mind is aware, 
but it's not resisting, it's not controlling, it's not needing the moment, the unfolding to be different than it is. That's a moment of realizing or recognizing non-attachment or non-identification, right? Or non-clinging is often a more buddhist word. More normal word would be non-attachment. In Buddhism, we often use non-grasping or non-clinging because it's really the mind being aware but with nothing extra, without the friction, without the suffering there. And so just bring this to mind, these four qualities, and uh, yeah, just as a way of starting over. So I want to use the last eight minutes to answer the question, why are we doing this in a, in a kind of a deeper, more spiritual sense? And a lot of you know that mindful awareness is a big deal now, used in a lot of secular settings. There probably isn't any larger hospital in the country now that doesn't teach you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction, some version of the Buddhist teachings. But the Buddha always taught it in a deeper context. And sometimes it's called, you hear it called, the Four Noble Truths. And it really um, is designed to address the question of our, you know, our direct experience of our heart being burdened. Right? Life is difficult. Or, I'm, I'm guessing you've noticed this, it isn't easy being a human being. It's really true. I mean, even if you're one of those more fortunate people, you don't live somewhere, someplace where you're being oppressed or being abused or being betrayed. There's justice, there's fairness. You're a beautiful, intelligent, fortunate human being. Even then, it isn't easy being a human being with birth and death, with loss with spiders and mosquitoes and Lyme's disease and, you know, politicians and the things that disturb us in life. So the Buddha, the way he talked about the practice, he really started from that point. Okay, so that's relevant. The fact that life is difficult is relevant. Because that's, in a way, the point of life is to address the fact of dissatisfaction. To address what do we do with insecurity? What, we, what do we do with uncertainty, the unpleasantness of uncertainty, of insecurity, of vulnerability? What do we do? What's the skillful thing to do? Well, order Netflix, HBO. <laughs> Acorn TV, you know, and renovate your kitchen, plan a vacation, you know, and get really angry at people who are in your way. And then you don't notice that life is difficult, right? Because you're too busy doing all the other things you do. I mean, that's basically your approach. That's the whole point of consumerism, which our culture is so dependent on, is we fill the space of our life to manage this underlying, very ordinary truth of unsatisfactoriness, uh, insecurity, uncertainty. That's just part of existence. It's not like somebody made a mistake or it's that way because we're bad or we're stupid. It's just the way that it is. So the Buddha's teaching is really grounded in this very pragmatic experience of what to do, what is the root cause of this unsatisfactoriness. Now, you can't realize that root cause without getting interested. So even though we're like breathing in, aware of the whole body, we're just developing the continuity of awareness, the power of awareness, the stability of awareness enough so we can actually learn how to be mindfully aware of this more subtle existential truth that life is unsatisfactory. Everything is, even pleasant experience is unsatisfactory because on some level we know it's going to change. You get home, you're in bed, 
purring cat is next to you, you've got your favorite beverage, your favorite honey, or if you like to be alone, the absence of any honey, you know. <laughs> but it isn't dependable, right? Because Wednesday morning will come, and then something else will have to happen. So even if we get pleasant circumstance, there's nothing stable about it. So this unsatisfactoriness is just sort of endemic in existence. So what is the root, or not what's the root, but can we get intimate? And in being intimate, we see what sets this in motion. And it really has to do with this attachment that I mentioned, or this clinging. And basically, we're expecting life to serve the ego. This is a, a conclusion we've drawn that we've never questioned. Isn't it true that on some level we think life, the fact that I have life, I have this life, I have these circumstances, doesn't it seem like the point of the circumstances of my life is to make me happy? And the, the entire purpose of me is to figure out how to make my circumstances make me happy. But when we think about that, it's really crazy. Like, why should we suppose that reality is here to make me happy? You see, it's like, isn't that sort of an arrogant assumption? That whatever this is, this great mystery we call my life, or reality, or whatever you call it, it's an unquestioned assumption that the point of life is to make me happy, like to give me what I want, give the sense of me, my ego, or whatever you consider you, this sense of me, what it wants, and then I'll be happy. And then when it doesn't, we feel screwed or betrayed or like I did something wrong or somebody did something wrong or God did something wrong because life isn't making me happy. So either we beat ourselves up and try harder to figure out how to make life make us happy, or if we're practicing mindful awareness, then we get really interested in that. And we start to see that that idea about life or sense experience is here to make me happy is actually the cause of being unhappy. The misinterpretation of life itself that wrong conclusion. Like, I mean, just to, this is just simplistic because it's nine o'clock, we have to end, but I'll just leave you with this statement just to kind of chew on and play with as you cultivate your present moment awareness. Maybe being intimate with life isn't about me getting what I need to be happy, but maybe opening, being intimate, being present is learning how to be generous, how to give how to love, right? So more about showing up in a loving, generous way than about getting. So just explore that. Now, we could never figure this out. We're never going to figure this out unless we're willing to play in that continuity of present moment awareness. Because that's when we'll see the activity of trying to use life to make me happy. And that's where you might see what the Buddha saw, which is, that's actually the cause for suffering. Trying to get happiness from sense experience, the Buddha suggests, is the cause of unhappiness. And giving ourselves to the present moment, showing up, engaging with love, generosity, not needing to get something, not needing to be dependent on getting something is freedom, is happiness, is beautiful. But it's not enough to hear it. I'm sure you realize you got to check it out. More than any other phrase, that was the Buddhist phrase, ehi pasiko is how it is in the Pali language, a language spoken around the time of the Buddha. Come and check it out. Come and see. You heard it? Now check it out. In terms of your own direct, immediate, subjective experience, check it out. And we'll check in with each other next week. 
So remember, if you come a little bit early, you can help set up the room. But all the folding chairs go down the stairs to the right and the right. And the black chairs get just against the wall. And if you're in the second wall of black chairs, just put them on one of the black chairs behind you. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. See you next Tuesday. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.